Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Marrow. John Marshall is a textile artist known for his work in traditional Japanese fiber art techniques and his generosity as a teacher. So John, you and I most recently worked together on an article you did for Nature's Colorways about indigo. And a lot of the things that I thought were true about indigo are just blown out of the water in your article. Such as? Such as, so I thought everybody knew that you had to dye indigo in a vat with a reduction reaction. Well, keep in mind, first of all, that that information isn't something I specifically developed. These are traditional techniques, and the information has been out there. So one of the things that I have found consistent over, uh, starting from the time I was very young, and I've been surprised by it, is how much information travels from the West to Asia and so little travels back. And that has to do with language because certainly everyone in Japan from grammar school studies English. Okay, that's a given. Um, As it happens, I studied Japanese from grammar school, but it rarely goes in that direction. And so as a result, all of our research papers, all of our everything is available to that part of the world, theirs is available to us if we would bother to access it through their language. Okay, so all of this is traditional work. And as a matter of fact, a lot of what was covered in the the recent article certainly isn't limited to Japan. The Hmong tribes, the Miao people in Southeast Asia, all do the fresh leaf indigo dyeing. It's quite beautiful. They just don't... They... They present their colors as beautiful finished pieces. And to them, it's like, of course, this is how you get this color. So why mention it? <laughs> and nobody from our end is asking. That that explains another thing, which is that I had always been taught that it's very difficult to dye green and that in order to dye green, you had to dye something with yellow and then dye with indigo on top of it. And I can't tell you how often that makes me cringe because you see that all the time in very reputable books and magazines and newspaper articles that there is no such thing as a green dye. There are hundreds of green dyes, and it certainly is not limited to indigo. If you go through any traditional Japanese book, you'll find quickly 10 or 15 very reliable green dyes. I, I don't know what to say beyond that. It's not... Um, yeah, I don't know what to say beyond that. The As I say, the information is there. And one of the things I hope to be able to do, since, as I said, this isn't information I'm inventing. It's um, something I'm simply accessing what's there. And I hope the role I can play is as a moderator or um, a matchmaker of sorts to bring the information to the West and let people know the beauty and wealth that's available to us if we'd bother to access it. And that certainly includes all of these different colors. Now, this might seem off topic since it's not indigo, but recently 
um, I was teaching a class in, in natural dyes on a, a Zoom, and I have a student who's in India, but she's actually from Bhutan originally. And she's in the process of researching um, and helping to preserve the knowledge of lac dyeing, which is being suppressed by the uh, government in Bhutan. Um, they're for religious reasons, apparently. But one of the things I was able to access through Japanese um, sources from, from the 1970s is a recording showing them herding lack. Now, what that means is that they have a, a whole video series of a man in his 50s. He goes to the tree. The lack is growing on the stem. He cuts down the tree. He hikes up the Himalayas 2,000 feet to take them to a cooler climate because it's summer in the lower areas. So he takes them so that they can survive the heat to a, a cooler area. He transfers them to a non-related tree, so a tree of a different, entirely different species. He hooks the branch there and he leaves it. In the course of a month, they all sort of scurry off that branch onto the new tree, spend the summer there. In fall, he goes back up, collects those same fellas, collects the branch that he led last time, which now has the abandoned lack, the color, takes them both down to the valley. Now he has the color. He has the fresh insects. They create a whole new crop of lack. He's dependent on the insects, but they're also dependent on the human intervention. Now, uh, many of your listeners will know Michelle Whiplinger, quite a quite well-known natural dyer. And she used to do a lot of work and travel to India studying the lack and so forth. But she had never heard or seen that before. You know, so I was surprised and, and shared the video with her as well. Um, but these are things that are available and documented in Japan that for whatever reason, no one here has ever, he ever heard about. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's hard to know what to say beyond that. It's just there. Well, and I think lack is something that probably many of our listeners won't actually be familiar with at all. So okay. it's it's an insect. And, you know, what color it gives? Well, I think most people will probably be familiar with cochineal um, as a red source of dye. Lack is also a red source of dye. And just to give you a little bit of background, the word lack is also the word for lacquer because the lack insect is a parasite on a branch. And basically, as it excretes this uh, encrustation on the branch, which forms its little house and so forth, um, that encrustation is what gives us the dye, not the insect itself. We don't kill the insect. It's the, the leftover. But in order to remove the color, you have to boil that excretion and you get dye out of it, but you get other things. The other thing you get is lacquer and hence the word lack okay so you get an oily substance that oily waxy substance is also what they used to use for the wax when you wax seal stamp an envelope for privacy you know when you, you melt the wax and put it that was the red sealing wax that was the wax from the lack and the word lack come from comes from sanskrit which means tens of thousands so you have tens of thousands of little bugs crawling all over the branch. That's the root Sanskrit word that gives us the name for the insect and for shellac and for lacquer and all those things. And it's probably way more than you wanted to know. But there you are. <laughs>
No, I love the way that all of these things are connected. Just circling back to indigo, which I know is something that you have, you know, made a particular study of. It seems like even within Japanese culture, there are Japanese dye traditions. There are so many ways of using indigo. Yes, there are. There are. um, We have a tendency, just as you mentioned at the beginning, that we think of indigo as blue that you dip in the pot, you pull out, it oxidizes, you get blue, you have blue yardage, you have blue jeans. Great. Done. Go on to the next project. But certainly most cultures in the West, as well as in Japan, use indigo in combination with other dyes as an over dye or an under dye to give purples and such, or greens, as you mentioned earlier. And in addition to that, of course, the indigo threads or yardage is combined with other things. So you can certainly take indigo dyed blue in all its different shades and then combine that with a lac dyed red or an onion onion skin dyed yellow to give you beautiful checks. Or the indigos can also be painted with for all different types of beautiful imagery on textiles. And so indigo is very, is more commonly used in combination with a myriad of other colors than being limited uh, to its own isolated family. Now, certainly it's beautiful in and of itself. There's no question about that. But it, it has so many other rich and vibrant options. And one of the things that somebody somebody told me once upon a time, and I believed it to be true up until very recently, was that you always had to dye with indigo last. That you you would always dye indigo on top of something else. You would never dye indigo and then put it into another dye bath. The indigo itself doesn't care. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it's not going to object. So it depends on what you want. As a general rule, if you think of vat dyed indigo, Okay, now, again, there are other kinds of indigo, but vat-dyed indigo, if you think of that as a pigment, and when I say pigment, I mean because it coats the fiber, okay? And just like mud dyeing, I mean, dyeing actually with mud, with dirt, um, just like any other pigment, it can crock off, it can rub off because it's sitting on the surface as opposed to staining. Okay, so if it's sitting on the surface as any other pigment, there's a tendency to mask what's under it. So as a general rule, indigo doesn't have a luster. Onion skins have a luster. Lac has a luster. Um, you know, logwood has a luster because if it's on silk, because it's staining it, not coating it. And so that allows the natural luster of the fiber to show through. In the case of indigo, since it's coating it, and masking it, then um, if you apply indigo last, it will mask what's under it. Okay, so Mm -hmm. as an example, if I dye indigo first and put onion skin on top of it, it will definitely give me a beautiful green. If I reverse the order, it will be more blue than it would have if I put it first. Okay, now now let's leave that dyed indigo for just a moment. Okay, reduced indigo. Sure. And if we go to one of the things like fresh leaf indigo, which is also in a bath, that's pH sensitive. Okay, so in that particular case, because it's pH sensitive and it can also be heat sensitive, if you're mm-hmm. going to boil your fiber in a dye, I'll say onion skins again, 
And if you're going to use, let's say, an acid base, you know, if you're going to put um, a heavy amount of alum or something, which is slightly acidic, okay, then now you have an ice acid tainted fiber in a hot medium that will kill that peacock's blue. Oh, because okay. it's heat sensitive and pH sensitive. Mm -hmm. So if you want to keep the peacock blue aspect of your color combination, mm -hmm. all right, then you have to do the peacock blue fresh leaf last. Uh, okay. Now, if I did it first, it would still be blue, but it would be the navy blue of a vat dyed because it's killed the, the Robin's egg blue quality, that vibrant quality. But if you do it last, then that's still there and you're good to go. This is very, very complicated. And I guess that's why you wrote a book on it, right? You wrote, well, wrote a book called Singing the Blues? Yeah, yes. And, and I shouldn't say complicated, <laughs> but, I, I, but I should say it's, uh, it's very nuanced, maybe is a better word. Well, yeah, but it's not – once you know the rule or more importantly, once you know the – characteristic it's no different than cooking i mean you don't put gravy down and then your mashed potatoes on top of it <laughs> right i mean you could but or you don't you don't put the meringue first and the lemon on top of that you know those are just standard orders if you want to get a result or mm -hmm. i can make an apple pie by putting the crust first in the apples and that's an apple pie if i put the apples in first and the crust on top that's a cobbler they both eat well <laughs> Yep. Right? Yes. So it's just what whatever goal you're after. So the the sort of rule of thumb for anyone who's interested is if it's a reduction vat, which is already high pH, okay? If it's a reduction vat, then you can do that at any point because it's a pigment-like dye and doesn't mm -hmm. care. When you're dealing with robin's egg blue fresh leaf that's no longer a pigment like dye that stains the cloth okay and it leaves the luster showing so mm -hmm. that's now goes back into sort of the other dye like onion skin okay so with that in mind you need to treat it as a ph sensitive dye and a temperature sensitive dye in the same way you would treat cochineal that way or many many other dyes that are ph or uh, temperature sensitive so it's just, you know, you have three rules. You just have to look at what it is you're after, which method you're using, and apply the, the basic one. It's, it's just as contrary, as you mentioned, to what we've been told all along. Is it your interest in indigo generally that led you to, to write that book, Singing the Blues? No, to be honest with you, and you can edit this out if you want. I'm not particularly interested in indigo. It's, <laughs> it's the, probably the least of my interests. It's just that it was an easy subject to write about. The I'm working up to other subjects that are far more complicated and more dear to my heart. And I thought I would do this as a practice run. So again, I, sometimes the public doesn't always want to know the truth, but you know, um, indigo I is think people would love to know that. <laughs> well, my real love, my passion is a Japanese technique called katazome, which is the rice paste resist. And you have you do carved stencils or you don't, depending. You can direct paint. And indigo is one small aspect of that. So everything covered in singing the blues is like one step of 20 in the katazome process. 
And then, of course, you have to know all these other dyes and so forth as well to use. Each die has its own peculiarity. Okay, just like uh, uh, if um, I'm kind of a one-trick pony when it comes to cooking, but if I were a broader base chef, I would need to know the nuances of all my ingredients to be successful. And so that's what re is required in katazome, as well as more, uh, you know, the stencils and the pastries and all of that on top of that. So again, the indigo is really just one color out of a whole palette, a whole rainbow of colors that need to be produced for that process. That's what I love to do. And there's a whole range of different resist options. So what is it about katazome that is particularly interesting to you? Well, it's sometimes your first love is your best love. <laughs> you know? And so katazome is the first rice paste resist I was introduced to. So there, there is that. Um, the other part of it is I can do everything I want to with it. So I kind of don't need to have a roaming eye for other romances with with resist um it washes off completely with water it's only using rice and bran a little bit of calcium hydroxide which is pickling lime right and and water and salt so when i wash my textiles all that water goes immediately into the garden there's absolutely nothing toxic i have a a, a lush garden because it's getting all of that liquid compost all the time um, the same with the dyes. The dyes in this process are completely consumed. So it's not vat dyeing, it's painting for all intents and purposes. You're applying with a brush anyway. And even though I use mordants and I use a very broad range of mordants, okay, um, but all of those mordants are completely consumed. There's no leftover. And furthermore, before I apply the mordanted dyes, while I'm applying the mordanted dyes, and after I apply the mordanted dyes, I'm using soy milk. And soy milk is a protein polymer that encases the dye and, of course, the mordant with it. And now this encapsulated protein is permanently glued to my textile. It stays there. So there's nothing to wash out. There's nothing to pollute. And furthermore, there's nothing to fade. Because now anything will fade a little bit. I mean, you, with age, we all fade a little bit, right? So um, <laughs> the the protein also acts in the soy milk as a UV uh, protection. And I've tested this. It also acts as permapressing for the textiles. And it also acts as Scotch guard once it's cured to pre prevent soiling of the textiles. So all of those things combined mean um, I have beautiful, high-quality work, or anyone using the process does, and in a totally non-polluting, safe-for-me, safe-for-the-environment uh, medium. That is just amazing. I mean, it's, it sounds so um, economical in a way, that, that it's uh, measured is maybe the right word. And it's almost too easy to be true. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't cost anything. You're talking about three cents worth of soybeans. You know, you can't market it because there's no profit in that other to the soy farmer. But it's information there for anybody that, that you can do at any point. Um, I've actually tested now the, the soy milk, which is getting away from the katazome for a moment. But going back to the indigo, if you have indigo that is crocking, that's rubbing off on you, 
Okay. And maybe you've bought um, a beautiful um, African uh, shirt or an exquisite scarf from Thailand or something, but it is rubbing off on you a bit. Apply a coat of soy milk. It glues all of that excess color. And that's what's rubbing off the excess color. It glues it onto the fiber and it leaves it there and it doesn't crock anymore. And it permapresses and it scotch guards and it does all that other stuff at the same time. And so I've done that where, again, um, I bought a, an exquisite African piece. It was really beautiful. But it was from a region where they don't have much water. And with that in mind, their techniques are very different than the Japanese. And it had a very distinct smell to it, Okay, which the Japanese ones don't. This was a, a very heavy sort of... A, um, a, a urine manure kind of smell to it. Okay, not not pleasant if it got wet. So I washed it um, just to be clean, applied the soy milk, laid it in the sun uh, beforehand, applied the soy milk. Smell was totally gone. No more crocking. And I've been using it for 40, 50 years now. That is another story. That is another thing about indigo that ev everybody knows that indigo is smelly. But well, you just said it's not necessarily. But there again, it depends on what process you're using. And that's the glory of, of indigo is that every country in the world that uses it goes about it a little bit differently. Now, Japan, I'm sure, isn't the only country, but Japan has never used urine for anything in their dyes. It just sort of like never occurred to anybody. It's not used in any of the processing for anything. And therefore, indigo included does not have that smell. Um, if you're familiar with Roland Ricketts, who I would say is probably one of certainly the leading people in North America, you know, for for the Japanese vat dyeing, um, he's what he's going to do is use a Japanese fermentation vat. And so here again, the only ingredients you have in that is the indigo pigment and bran and a little bit of sake, okay, and some calcium hydroxide, the pickling line. And basically, that's it. There's nothing in there to have a stinky smell. It does have a distinct smell, but it's an aromatic, blossomy smell as opposed to a waste smell uh, that some cultures have. Okay, so how you go about producing your indigo greatly affects what you wind up with. And then, in addition, if you follow the type of indigo that Roland does, or, or any Japanese person does for vat dyeing, unlike the West, they don't dip it in three times to get a dark color. You'll dip it 20 times, which means you're dealing with a very weak vat. But if you dip it and take your time, there's no crocking. If it's done properly, very good quality Japanese indigo does not crock. But you have to be patient and invest the time. If you're not willing to do that, the short cut cheater method is to use the soy milk. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned that you've been studying Japanese since you were a child. Do you study textiles in Japan and read about them as well? Or how did you come to be interested in those things? Well, I grew up in a tiny community of Japanese Americans outside of Sacramento. And so one of the things people did is you go to Japanese school on Saturday. You know, somebody else might go join Little League or something. You know, we, we went to Japanese school. And so when I was 17, I decided I want to go to Japan to, to study my textiles and things. And so even though I quite honestly did not speak well, 
because it's an old dialect that we were taught. <laughs> okay. It's like Ozark English. Okay. Um, nonetheless, I could hear Japanese. And so it was easy to pick up standard quickly. So with that in mind, I quickly secured apprenticeship since I could speak Japanese uh, among the proper teachers for that. So yes, we studied that. Um, it was traditional training. Um, I, I also went to Catholic school, so I was prepared for that because when I made a mistake, even though I was a foreigner, uh, you get hit upside the head, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I didn't use the correct language, if I got smart mouthed as a young 17-year-old will do sometimes, you get lopped upside the head and it cures you of it real quick. <laughs> you know, but remember, this is 50 years ago. It's not quite like that nowadays. And we were required, I was required to read and write and research. And so much of that started then. But of course, over the last 50 years, I've continued to to do research. It's interesting. Shea, Shea Pendre also studied uh, embroidery in Japan. Mm -hmm. She's a, uh -huh. quite a quite knowledgeable in Japanese embroidery, yeah. and I'm fairly certain that they did not hit her up. <laughs> well, it. I don't know at what age she went. And I don't know the the training circle. It may have been perhaps through Kure Naikai or one of one of those organizations starting here that are accustomed to foreigners. Perhaps um, mine wasn't. They had never. My teacher had never even met a foreigner before. Uh, she had never had a male student. She had never had anyone so young as I. Um, and so she never hit me. It was the upperclassmen who did it uh, when she wasn't looking generally. But that was good because they taught me what was appropriate and what, what wasn't. And even though I was surprised <laughs> the first first 10 times, you know, <laughs> nonetheless, um, it did knock some sense into me. I don't advocate it. There's a lot of interest in Japanese textile traditions, whether it's Boro or Sashiko. Mm -hmm. And I think I see a lot of people who are enthusiastic about it, but also don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. So as somebody who has sort of worked in both traditions, how, how do you approach that? Or how, how, should, how well, should other folks approach it? What's wrong? I mean, one of the questions I get around the indigo, and, and it's fairly common comment, and it always surprises me, is, you know, gee, I'm getting such beautiful colors, but I'm not sure I'm doing it right. If you're getting beautiful colors, you're doing it right, you know? <laughs> if you get what you want, mm -hmm. then it might not be the way your teacher or somebody else does it, but if you get what you want, you're doing it right. So perhaps mm -hmm. another example of that is an artist I've always admired, Ina Kozel. Um, I believe she lives in New York now, but she, uh, and this is dating me, so this is back again, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. She did a style of Japanese batik, roketsuzome, uh, like Betsy Derling Benjamin does. The imagery is very different. Okay, rozome, maybe people know it by that name better. Um, hers was very ephemeral, ephemeral, very Saturn-like, misty, moody colors and things. She went to Japan, did not speak any Japanese at all somehow hooked up with her teacher, was there for uh, several months, came home, created her beautiful work, years later took it back to him to show. You know, look at what I learned. Thank you for helping me. And she said he kind of scratched his head and he cocked it sideways and he looked at her and he said, hmm, what a delightful mistake. <laughs> so, so she did not understand anything he said, but she got what she needed out of it. And good for her because she actually, I think, wound up 
making things far more beautiful than he. You know, so so if she had actually understood every word and done exactly as she was told and never ventured beyond it, she wouldn't be Ina Kozel with her exquisite textiles. So what's what's wrong? You know, you have to be respectful to your teacher. You're appreciative of the knowledge they share. But uh, let me put it this way. If it's me and one of my students, the best thing they can do is go off and not make something like I did, but create something delightful. Um, I have one student as an example, Cheryl Lawrence, who is quite an accomplished artist. On I just absolutely love her work and actually collect her work because they're things I can't do. Um, she's did as an example recently, my work looks more traditional Japanese. She did a whole collection of katazome stencils of all of the incoming women to the House of Congress. And it was a fantastic oh. exhibit. And I could never do that. And it makes me so happy and, and delighted that there are artists out there taking the techniques far beyond what I could ever do. I teach a Tsujigahana class, which is a combination of shibori and direct painting with uh, natural dyes. And there were two students who took the class who had never had that before. And they produced just the most delightful, totally non-Japanese things because they were drawing from their own experience. And it just makes your heart sing to see the difference. Anyone can copy something. You know, and, and we all get limited to our boxes, but they were able to take it and just soar with it. I don't know that they've ever done anything more, but that one piece, they had the freedom to follow directions, but not feel a need to mimic or imitate. Okay, so that goes back to showing respect or appropriate attitude towards a culture that you can be respectful of it. And to me, if you're really going to be respectful and grateful to the teacher, you'll give back something by adding your own imagination. Okay, that's the best way that somebody can repay me is by adding to the pool of knowledge that we all get to delight in. I think that's a question that I know that my fellow editors wrestle with a lot is how yeah. to be respectful of traditions that we were not born into, that we admire and aspire yeah. to take part in, but aren't, it's sort of our, our avocation, but not our birthright in a way, if that makes well, sense. But see, there's a lot about cultural appropriation later. And I maybe hear a little bit more about it than some other people, because I live on the edge of a reservation. Okay. And certainly there's a lot of concern over that legitimately for it. But again, Maybe if I used a different analogy again, and here again, I don't know the fellow's name, but I was in Arizona once doing um, a program of my work, and there is an African-American fellow there, and he plays the Japanese shakuhachi, which is a type of flute. And he was dressed traditionally Japanese, and at first people were taken aback, you know, by it. And he played the instrument absolutely polished and exquisite. I mean, I'd never heard anything so beautiful before. He totally nailed it. Far better than many of the Japanese performers I've heard. Okay. And I do like that flute. But I had people go up to him and say, how come you're not playing jazz? Well, there are people playing jazz. He did this better. Why, as an American, would he have to limit himself to anything? As Americans, 
I think we're really blessed with all the influences through all the immigrants and all the cultures that we have that we can pick and choose from. There is no reason why anyone has to be limited to their genetic line. We are all heirs to our American legacy of multiculturalism. If you do it with respect, if you're doing it just to copy it, I'll go copy a Hopi design, stamp it on my t-shirt and put it on Etsy to make a buck. Well, that has nothing to do with me or my culture or even the meaning of the, of the Hopi uh, ghost gods and things. Okay. But if I study the culture and if I understand it, and if I respect it, and if I can work and maybe expand upon just copying an image, give my interpretation of what uh, a Hopi Indian design is like, okay, then I don't feel that's appropriation in the same way of just copying and ripping off that way. Um, the issue came up here with the tribes when we were doing um, an art show, and someone asked me, I was sponsoring it. And I was asked if I was going to approach Native Americans for it. And I said, no. You know, I said, I'm, I'm not approaching African Americans or Asian Americans or Euro Americans. I'm approaching artists. That's all. I'm approaching artists. Every artist is welcome. And she looked at me, well, why aren't you approaching Natives? And I said, what does that mean? If I say I'm specifically looking for Native American artists, to me anyway, that means I'm looking for basket weavers, bead makers. Now, as it happens, there are several families in our valley that are world-renowned as far as their basket making. So I'm not turning my nose up at that. But what happens to the Native American fellow who does German Impressionist painting? Does he get blocked because he looks, he looks Indian or his family is Indian? Just because he's Yuki, does that mean he can't participate? because I was soliciting Indians? No. If I solicit artists, it does not become an issue. It's the quality of the artwork that's the issue, no matter what the person looks like. That Again, I've got on my soapbox there. but <laughs> One of the things you're touching on is that there are a lot of different ways for a person of good conscience who wants to allow knowledge and expression and respect to come out and be, and be shared. There are a lot of different ways to go about it that still have that foundation of wanting to mm -hmm. preserve textile traditions and preserve people's heritage. And Japan too. Japan has to be the biggest cultural appropriator in the world that's ever <laughs> been. And good for us. Good for us because they have taken every textile technique produced anywhere in the world, made it their own, and that's the key, made it their own, and excelled at it and gave us more than they took. And because nothing is pure, Everything has gradations to it, um, whether you're talking about racial lines, whether you're talking about cultural lines, art lines. So as you said, there's a blending. Now, there might be two extremes where there is something that is absolutely, if there is such a thing, you know, absolutely whatever we're talking about here and the opposite here. But everywhere in between is a degree of melding, merging, and influence. And again, I think that's where the United States has a distinct advantage because we welcome so many cultures and people from all over the world. We don't want to become a melting pot, which means Velveeta cheese in the end. You know, you, you, you want to protect the unique flavor that each brings, but that doesn't mean we can't blend and get along and share the best of, of what we have. And then everyone benefits from that. That's not cultural appropriation. It's cultural sharing. And then you build upon that to work something even better 
as a conglomeration of all of those bits and pieces. But again, as with anything, you do it with mm-hmm. knowledge and a nod, respect to the to the originators of it. So when you went and did your very first apprenticeship in Japan, what was the skill that you were learning? Actually, I went to study doll making. <laughs> and so that was why I went. And in the doll making variety, the, the type of doll making that I was learning, uh, what attracted me to it is you made everything from scratch. Everything. So that meant you go and choose what branch you're going to cut down and cure it. We had to study glass blowing to make the eyeballs, weaving to weave the textiles, dyeing to dye the fabric for it, embroidery to embroider the things, Japanese sewing. So my very first book was Make Your Own Japanese Clothes. I think it's been in print 40 years or something now. Okay. Um, I would do it differently now than I did then, but nonetheless, it's still there. But those were all the different kinds of things that I needed to study, not to master. But I needed a broad, shallow range of knowledge in order to tackle a doll. And then I could delve more deeply as I needed for each topic. And then that was not a good career choice (laughs) because they take five years to make, and which means it's usually 10 years before you can sell it. And in the meantime, how are you eating? (laughs) You know, so again, not a good, that's not something the career counselor in school (laughs) recommended. But um, my youngest sister suggested that I take the diminutive patterns of the dolls uh, and focus on the katazome and textiles, which is what I really loved of all the techniques. And so then what did turn into a career was my production of -of one-of-a-kind art-to-wear garments. And so actually that's what I spent the most of my career doing is this katazome creating Japanese-influenced designs, but something you can drive in, uh, you know, and and where to the supermarket if you need to. And actually, I think the very first time you and I worked together, you kindly wrote an article about something called Bingata, I think, which is a, a pigment painting. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. That's Okinawan katazome, oh. basically. And so they use it. The, the Okinawans are the ones who develop the soy milk part of it. That's commonly used in Japan. But in the 1970s, that wasn't used in Japan. Um, it was very rarely used, but when um, the United St- Okinawa was a possession of the United States, and so when it was returned to Japan in the late '60s, there was a huge boom in bingata, and so the type of katazome that I was studying was bingata, and so we had access to all this wonderful information, and as a result, those techniques spread and influenced other Japanese dye techniques so that soy milk is now commonly used. But here again, the Japanese appropriated, rightly so, the Okinawan technique to improve their textiles. And so again, everyone benefited from that. That's one of the questions I was going to ask you is, how have textiles changed in in Japan since you started studying there? Well, you know, since I concentrate on the traditional and trying to preserve that, I'm not nearly as knowledgeable as as many other people are on the contemporary things like Junichi Arai or people that have these very innovative synthetic textiles and things that are incredible sculptures. Um, That's not my strength. Um, I have deliberately limited myself to the more traditional. But what I have seen change dramatically is the falling off of all of the traditional uh, textile Mm -hmm. techniques. 
So historically, if you look at um, there is World War II, of course, and then shortly after that, like any occupied country, you know, there was poverty and just recovering from the horrific war effort that took place and being a defeated nation and a depression that goes, uh, uh, an emotional depression that goes with that. But by the 60s, especially because of transistors radios and Japan were the ones that developed the transistors. So that suddenly made the nation wealthy and something to take pride in. So suddenly in about the mid 60s, early 60s to 60s going into almost 70s was this massive upswing financially in the um, affluence of the country. So suddenly people are proud of being Japanese. And when they go overseas, they want to wear Japanese clothes. So all of those pre-war industries that were had limped along up to that point, we're suddenly seeing a boom. And that's when I arrived. So you have this incredible situation where um, textiles that no one could be afford, afford before were brought back. And the Japanese have always invested in textiles in a way that the West never has, or to my knowledge, certainly not in the United States. So it would not be unusual if you have the means to pay a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars for a sash. Wow. And those were things I saw in the department store all the time. I mean you go and drool at a distance, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but but it was not well if it's twenty four karat gold and platinum mm-hmm. woven with mother of pearl inlay on top of it, woven, again mother of pearl woven. Um and it's all hand woven in extremely complex jacquard-like patterns with no repeat in 14 yards. So it's not like other jacquards, you know, that have a repetitive pattern. Then suddenly you're talking about something pricey because the culture supported it through purchases. The artist could continually raise the bar of quality because there was someone to pay them to do that and allow them to develop that. If you develop that, nobody buys it, you're sunk. You know, so our culture, we tend to shop for the cheapest. You know, what can I get from Amazon or or Walmart or something and pay the least amount I possibly can for budgetary reasons? But that wasn't the case there. And the lack video that I mentioned earlier that was part of a Japanese uh, NHK, which is their PBS station. NHK broadcast that every day, every weekday at prime time, so everybody in the nation is sitting having dinner pretty much at the same time. So from 6.15 to 6.30, for 15 minutes every single day for 15 years, they had a program that dealt just with fiber arts. Oh, wow. Can you imagine prime time here having something like that? You know, on a... their NHK is the largest station there, the most watched. So they're the ones who broadcast that thing about the lack. They did a travel along the Silk Road, all the natural colors produced on the Silk Road. This month, we're doing black. Next month, we're doing red all the way through the Middle East. And when they're done with that, then they started in on insects. Now we're doing bagworm, woven bagworm skins. Now we're doing cochineal. Now we're doing... and so. Who heard of bagworm skins? I have a whole suit jacket made out of bagworms. But I know what they are. <laughs> Please tell me it looks better than it sounds. <laughs> um, 
It does. <laughs> it look, yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't look creepy crawly. It looks like, have you ever seen fish leather, fish skin leather? It looks to be a little bit like that. It feels like thick Tessa silk. Oh. Because it is silk after all. I mean, bagworms basically, they are like a hermit crab. They go along and they collect little bits of things and they knit them together with their silk and they carry this house with them wherever they go. And it's that house you're using. Ah, Now, in France, there are some French artists that took the aquatic bagworm and they took away everything in their little pool except rubies and diamonds and gold bugle beads. And these little worms (laughs) took those because it's all... And they started weaving them in beautiful striped patterns and spiral patterns. Who knew they did patterns? Because we're always looking at brown things. Yes. But when they were given all these, and then these were used for, are still are used for earrings. The world is a strange and wonderful place. And the reason they figured that place. out was because the Japanese did it. <laughs> but one of the other really cool things that I liked was roaming silkworms. So everyone knows how silkworm will weave, you know, it has a little frame, twigs. And it spins its cocoon and good to go. You take it and make three. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But there's a group who will take a wooden frame. Think about a great big silk wor- uh, silk screen. Okay, a silk screen. So it's a, a foundation with a frame around it. And they turn the worms loose. So that frame is whatever shape or size you want that piece of cloth to be. And because they have no sticks, there's no place to start their cocoon. So they just keep wandering in a little herd. And as they wander and they crisscross back and forth, they overlap and build up and it becomes non-woven fiber. Now, they'll always miss a spot. So what you do is you turn out the lights and you shine a flashlight on the spot they missed and they all go towards the light and mend the bare spot and go about their business. So when you've, you're all done, you remove the worms and you peel off this thing as if it were a sheet of paper. Now you have non-woven silk yardage that you make into an obi or whatever garment you're going to make. Have you so, ever heard of that before? Never. <laughs> and when you were describing it, I was thinking, oh, kind well, of like a silk hanky. A silk hanky is yeah, six but, inches but square. six yards long. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so, see, now, I hope somebody hearing the podcast will take that off and, and do something themselves with it, you know, get inspired to, to innovate somehow. But without that exposure to other creative, brilliant minds elsewhere, we can get stagnant in our own things. We get stagnant in our thinking without enough stimulation and input. We all need creative inspiration. And so those are the things I delight in, in doing the research. One of my recent guests read an article about raising silkworms, wrote a letter to somebody who mailed her some silkworms, mm-hmm. and now she raises them and she keeps, them, she keeps the uh-huh. eggs in her refrigerator. Because, because raising silkworms is a thing <laughs> that people right. do. But she gets enough, huh? Yes. Yeah. There's a, a wonderful website called Spitworm. Worm Spit. Um, I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah, Worm Spit. Yeah. And that's great. He writes wonderful articles about, you know, uh, the joys and tribulations of raising them. It's a wonderful thing to do. But again, that's not something you grow up thinking I'm going to be a silkworm grower, right? No, it's funny because I think of people who grow silkworms as being little silk ranchers. But you just told me that there's somebody herding luck. So <laughs> there's right. all sorts of insect ranching yeah. going on. That'd make um, sort of an interesting cartoon too, wouldn't it? <laughs> Little <laughs> cowboy hats on each worm or something. <laughs> so in your own work, you're preserving traditional techniques. Do you 
use a sort of a traditional vocabulary in creating them or do you sort of use your own interpretations? How do you fit your artistic interests in with your craft and preservation interests? When you say vocabulary, I'm assuming you're talking about a a visual vocabulary. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, There there is an experience I had once when living in Oakland where the curator from one of the curators from the museum approached me to see my work about pop show. It's the California State Museum, so they often will feature California artists and things. And in the end, I didn't hear back. And so I contacted us, you know, well, you know, what did you think? And they sent a very nice form letter that is a form letter and gave you no reasons that you could really grab hold of. So I gave her a call back again and say, you know, so really, what does this mean? It's a learning experience. And she hesitated. And finally, in the end, she told me she felt my work was too derivative. Hmm. Okay. Which is, I think, a legitimate description of it. So what is your definition of derivative, though? (laughs) You know, she was not someone familiar with Asian art. And she felt that I was simply copying other people's work, which is not the case. So let's put it in a European context. They did a whole exhibition of just crucifixions. Okay, so can you really say that about 300 different depictions of the crucifixion? Really? I mean, where is derivative in that? (laughs) You know, the artistry is not in the theme. The artistry is not actually in the subject matter itself. That might be the inspiration, but that's not the artistry. The artistry comes from the manner in which the artist interprets it and depicts it and shares with the world graphically their feelings and relationship with the subject matter. Now, I don't think that deeply about my work all the time, but that's what I was doing. The fact that she wasn't familiar, if she sees a chrysanthemum, she's going to think of all chrysanthemums as being the same and it's just one more chrysanthemum as opposed to saying, oh, it's just one more paeda. You know, so she had a different standard when looking at Western art that she was so familiar with than when she was looking at Asian art. And we're all guilty of that. We know the nuances of our family and our children. We know the nuances of our country or our background. And it's no different than when they talk about world history and it's only Europe. (laughs) Europe is not the world. You know, when they talk about uh, Rome being the largest city in the world at that time, no, it was the largest city in Europe, far larger cities in China and even in the Americas. Even in North America, there is a larger one at that time, as it turns out, in Missouri. But that person is seeing a very myopic view in my mind. So to go back to, you know, um, how I'm doing, my work does look Japanese for the most part, and I'm, I'm happy with that. But I also know I'm limited by that. And I don't mind saying that, which is why I try very hard not to limit my students by boundaries. Because I have a Japanese background in the sense from a childhood. It's a comfortable environment, and I'm totally comfortable designing within that. But my student is not necessar- does not necessarily have that background, and I don't want to force them into it. So the fact that they can take it and adapt the techniques to doing all of the women in the House of Congress, 
you know, that to me is, as I said, is just pure joy to see them not handicapped by my limitations. Does that, you know, that make sense that way? Absolutely. Um, what you said about sort of cultural lenses, I think to some extent also matches your formal lens in that, for example, I look at textiles now and I see the differences among them, whereas somebody who doesn't would say, you know, uh-huh. that's just a whole bunch of bedspreads. Aren't they all the same? They're all and brown. No. <laughs> yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. You know, all quilts are uh-huh. the same. Um, so being interested in what- Or all wines are the same if you don't know the difference. Well, that's true. Right? I mean, if you're not a wine connoisseur, if you don't drink alcohol at all, you know, one wine's the same as the next. You're only drinking it to get drunk, right? <laughs> you know, that's, that's one perspective. But yes, I would say, Ab, now tell me this, with all the people that you've interviewed and yourself as well, do you find that novices to this color world can see as many colors as you can? Oh, I'm still pretty well a novice in this color. I, I, I'm a dilettante. <laughs> I ha- I don't know. Well, I was having a conversation with my sister recently. She lives in Portugal and apparently she likes black and a lot of people there wear black from, from what I understand. Okay. From what she's telling me. And I said, well, what color of black do you like? And it caught her off guard, even though she's worked with clothing and things her whole life. And I said, well, there are all kinds of black. There's blue black, there's red black, there's yellow black, there's maroon black, there's, you know, on and on and on. That pure carbon black has a place but it's dead in my mind that, okay, going back to doll making. One of the things we learned is when you paint the eyes of the doll, now these are Japanese dolls, so they're going to have, you know, quote, black eyes. Okay. But nobody has black eyes really. So what color are you going to make the eyes, even though they're black? If you want a very quiet contemplative doll, you add blue to the black. If you want an excited doll with a spark of life, you add a little bit of the black. They're both black, but they convey very different feelings. So even black has moods and that doesn't scream blue or red. It says black, but it still influences how we perceive it. I am never going to look at dolls the same way again. Um, that is, (laughs) well, these are, so those are the art dolls, you know, as opposed to manufacturing, but right now. And and most of what you're talking about, Katazomi, these are surface design techniques and painting. Is that, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Have you been interested in things like weaving as well, or is it mostly, you know, textiles and what you put on them as opposed to how the textiles are made that interests you? All of that, because they're all color and texture. So mm-hmm. I was trained in weaving, but I'm absolutely not a weaver. Knowing how to weave and weaving are two different things. And so within the Japanese textiles, the things I write about and the things I research absolutely include a broad range of Japanese weaving techniques and embroidery techniques and embossing techniques and, and so forth and quilting techniques and piecing techniques. They're all fiber and they all interest me and they all involve jigsaw puzzles of color and texture that you're combining a collage of of textile and color and texture to make something beautiful. The katazome is also that you're combining different textures of dyes. Again, the pigment relative to the juice kind, luster, not luster, intense, pastel, fabric exposed, fabric covered, all those things interplay. It's just a bit more dramatic when it comes to piecework, 
And when you're working with weaving, it's the same thing. Heavy yarns, light yarns, uh, raised texture, flat texture, all those things go into it. They're all artistry working with some sort of a defined palette. What sort of fabric do you use as your substrate, I guess? For my uh, dyeing, I, I really love the Japanese textiles. Beautiful ones from China. They're much more affordable than the Japanese ones. For There's nothing that quite matches the quality of the Japanese silks for the good quality one. When I love Indian tessas, I love rough textured silks. I generally don't work on China silks and things like that because they're a little bit lighter weight than I care to work with. Very typical, and this is traditional again, within Japanese kimono, it's very common to use a jacquard as the basis for katazome. So it'll be a white silk and it might have a pattern of waves or leaves or whatever. And you do your dye work on top, often ignoring the pattern underneath completely. So when you're finished, that randomized pattern relative to the surface design creates dimension. It gives a relief to the dye, causes the little raised areas of the jacquard to reflect light differently than the flat areas or the lower areas. Okay, Even though the color might be black again, if there's a jacquard within it, you get all these different reflections of light within that little black area. And so that's the advantage of using texture. And a Tessa would do the same thing in its own way. Back when I was referring to the boom in Japanese art and how they were willing to uh, textiles and their willingness to pay for things that way, it did come to an end. So about the year 2000, they had a huge financial downturn when their bubble, as they called it, burst. And so this had to do with real estate and so forth, which meant fortunes plummeted, which means people couldn't afford these fabrics any longer. So now suddenly you have this abundance of textile being produced in anticipation of sales, sales dropping off completely, but not believing it. So they're still producing, warehousing them so you don't have a glut on the market. Because if you put everything out, the prices would drop. So in the end, what happened is there was a huge bankruptcy of this entire infrastructure. And that's one of the things why it's important to me to preserve it. So that I'm sure many of your listeners will have bought in the past maybe bales of kimono a long time back. Those were old things, okay, that people were throwing away and put basically in a trash compactor and sent it overseas, okay? The things I'm talking about are generally sold more individually, but these are the things that were $100,000 or $200,000 that once dumped could be acquired for a couple hundred dollars. And I'm serious about that. Things because it's the inherent beauty and quality is there regardless, but the cash value is dependent on what somebody will pay. And if nobody's buying, you take what you can get. So these are the textiles I'm able to collect with this knowledge. So I mm -hmm. am able, the price for an exquisite one is the same as the price for a mediocre one. So knowing the difference, I take a better quality one, of course. And these <laughs> are things then I go ahead and use as samples in the books that I produce that are the limited edition ones with samples of the gold leaf textiles, samples of the oh, bagworm textiles samples of the hand embroidery, again, which I could have never afforded before. But suddenly, there's a glut on the market. 
And so with a little bit of knowledge, you can find some totally exquisite things. The key is knowledge. I have a yeah. collection of Emperor Meiji's garments, okay? Oh. Everybody who came back from World War II had the emperor's robe, right? Every, okay. every GI. Mine really are. They have all the paperwork, all the provenance with it. So Emperor Meiji was the emperor beginning in about 1880, and I think he went to about 1910 or thereabouts. And so he was the big one when the West and Japan were getting reacquainted. So I have a collection of maybe 14, 20 of his garments. Okay. I'd cut those up. And I say that because I haven't. <laughs> I should say I haven't. I want them to go eventually to a teaching university because he did wear them. The cuff mm -hmm. is frayed. His father wore some of them also. Mm. These aren't the best ones in the world. The really good ones are in the Japanese museums, not in my house. But this is the kind of stuff that was put together with the leftovers. And just like your mother, maybe when your mother passes away, there'll be a favor that you give to her best friend as a keepsake, you know, because your mother always wore that. That's what these were. They were put together in different collections and they were given to special friends oh. of the household. But that's when people had household. Now they live in mm -hmm. apartments and condos. Yeah. They don't have room to store this stuff. And so uh, they couldn't yeah. sell it in Japan because their names are so, I mean, it's easy to see whose hands these were in because of the documentation. So they had to discreetly dispose of it. And right. the friend who acquired them for me assured them it was going overseas. A little tiny cow town in Northern California, but that's way overseas, okay? <laughs> so yeah. these aren't the best, but if you're studying period costumes, if you want to know how the scene was constructed, if you want to look at the frayed portion and pick off a few threads to look under a microscope, no harm done. It's already worn out. It would be foolish not to cut this up and use it for research, knowing that the good stuff is taken care of elsewhere. Otherwise, the world gets flooded with too much stuff. So you were talking about pigments and mangata and, and katazome. I'm noticing a lot of people developing pigments now more like yeah. inks and mm -hmm. just pulling them out of all sorts of colors. Is that something you're uh -huh. seeing too? Um, yeah. I mean, you do have to pull them out of colors the same way you'd pull eyes out, right? But I think a big impetus to that, to the pigment. Now, many people have been producing pigments for many years. That's traditional. And the Japanese have their own traditions for that. And I was trained in that as well as part of the dyeing. But what has really spurred it on, I think, is Michelle Garcia's videos and his classes. He does really wonderful programs, troll dyes and pigment production, and has made it very accessible for people. And then there are all sorts of spinoffs from that. And again, as I say, there are other people certainly who have been producing all along, but he's been able to bring it to a much broader audience to the benefit of all of us. He's made it much more approachable. So he's approaching it as a chemist. When I'm approaching making my dyes, it's less scientific. It's based more on paying attention to what you're getting. It's the same way I cook. I don't measure when I cook. I throw in some of this and some of that, and you feel it, and you taste it, and it's right or it's not. Okay, now, not everything's in a success always, but, <laughs> but you know, sometimes you get some surprising successes that you wouldn't have gotten following the recipe. And sometimes something's on the counter, so, oh, well, rather than put it away, that'll go in the recipe. You know, that's okay. But the dying is the same thing. The, the issue in the West is that we're generally not willing to take time to learn. 
everything has to be a weekend project. So people will come to me and say, I want to take Katazome, but I only have Saturday and Sunday. Well, it's taken me 50 years. So, you know, I can give you two days worth of 50 years. <laughs> but when I'm teaching the Indigo class, just as an example, based on that 50 years, what I like to think I'm able to do is to codify it and simplify it. So I can give practical, straightforward ways of dealing with it, hopefully in a non-intimidating manner that allows you to follow the directions with a little bit of common sense. But when I was taught, the reason I got hit quite often is because I would ask questions. We weren't allowed to ask questions in those days. Absolutely not. You shut up, you watch, you do what the teacher says. Now, as a matter of fact, that's part of the language. So there's nusumi narai or nusumi nozoki. Uh, nusumi nozoki means to look sideways and steal information. So you're spying without letting the person know. Nusumi narai means to steal knowledge, to steal learning. And that's how you're taught. So when you're an apprentice, you go in, you wash dishes, you sweep the floor. Okay, you, you're, not, you're certainly not touching the dyes or the fabric. You do grunt work. And if you're diligent, the teacher's watching you. Someday, if you're paying attention, she will slip and do something in front of you. And if you're paying attention, you will act like you don't see it, but you'll be watching sideways and then run off and do it. And she's watching you run off and do it. And she spies on you. And when you've done it and you haven't done it correctly, she'll slip and do it again in front of you so you can observe once more. And you do that until you get it right. When you've got it right, she will slip and do the next stage. But she never comes up and says, this is how you do it or holds your hand. So it takes her standard apprenticeship period was 20 years. She died after five years for me. Okay. She knew she was dying. So she sped it up and she actually taught me. Mm -hmm. That's also why I got hit because the other students weren't taught and they were jealous. But, but um, she actually taught me in that five-year period as best as she could. But the normal system is for you to shut up and watch. And so you're learning on a cellular level and you intuit how to do things, which lets you tackle just about any problem. If I give you a one, two, three recipe, that's good for that recipe on that day with those ingredients, but it doesn't give you the deep foundational knowledge to extrapolate out for other circumstances. Okay, and that's the difference between our Western way of one weekend workshop and the Japanese method of protracted apprenticeship. It's the depth at which you learn. And so it's constantly a matter of trying to balance those two things when I'm teaching. You know, is to give you as rich an experience as possible, to leave you with the knowledge so you can go on and not bother me, <laughs> okay? But still have a cultural appreciation of what you're getting into. And also know that it's shallow so that you can go off and research more on your own or through other teachers. And not long ago, one of my students mentioned to me, and I, I was glad to hear it. She was complimenting me because many decades ago, I had mentioned to her, go take classes from as many teachers as you can. And of course, um, I'm teaching, I want students, okay? But I sincerely believe that, that if you come to me and take a class, 
I really recommend you go and take it from as many different teachers as you can, because each one will have some different perspective to give you, some different way of explaining it that maybe I couldn't, or maybe I could give you something they couldn't. But in the end, you will pick and choose the parts that have meaning to you in the manner in which they've been presented and go off in your own direction without undue influence by any of us, except for the knowledge. In Japan, it's the opposite. Once you've been attached to a teacher, you are not allowed to take for life. You're not allowed to take classes from anybody else. If you, Anne, have taken classes from somebody else, I'm not going to take you on. In a sense, they're polluted. You've been corrupted by their way of presenting information. Your loyalty is going to be with them. And so why should I, why should I have to deal with that? That's the traditional cultural attitude there. You know, one of the things that I keep learning over and over again is that there's no substitute for doing the work. Yeah. And, and do it again and again. And I think there's also a lot to be said for kind indulgence in yourself without being arrogant. I do see a lot of prideful ignorance people who are proud of their own stupidity sometimes, okay? And it's always shocking to me. A little humility can go a long way, but at the same time, have confidence in yourself and know what's important to you, not know what's important to me. I can give you the techniques. You have to decide if it's what you want and if it has meaning to you. I can't decide that for you. You're the only, you're the lead expert in the world of what's good for you, not me. You can take what I have to offer that's important to you and disregard the rest. So, John, what are you working on now? Well, since the pandemic, um, pretty much all the conferences and certainly my studio teaching and everything has closed down considerably. I'm already sort of a loner anyway. I like being alone. I entertain myself with my research. So right now, really what I'm doing is I'm loving catching up on all these textiles I collected. I spent all of my youth collecting these Japanese books and textiles with the idea that in my old age, I would finally have time to pull them all together and produce this research. Well, you know, I need to get on with it before way old age gets here and I can't do it. So I've been spending all my time um, preparing online Zoom classes and preparing books. I do Japanese sewing classes online, and I have the sewing book out, of course, from ages ago. So I'm just trying to basically, largely through self-publishing, chug-a-lug out each topic as it catches my eye. And what that means is when something falls off a high shelf and hits me in the head, it's like, oh, what's this? Oh, I forgot I had that. Well, that's going to be the next subject (laughs) that I write about, because it'll be some treasure I forgot I even had. I have the luxury of being ensconced with my textiles and my research. So one of the next projects coming up, uh, I'm preparing a book about Tsujigahana. And Tsujigahana is a combination of shibori dyeing and the hand painting. Um, You might be more familiar with it through the exhibitions that have come through North America by Ichiku Kubota. They were at a number of locations in North America. Quite exquisite work. John, thanks so much for joining me. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's been a delight for me to have the opportunity to share all of these interests with you. John's article about fresh leaf indigo appears in our book, Nature's Colorways. Podcast subscribers can get a free ebook edition of Nature's Colorways when you purchase the print edition at shop.longthreadmedia.com. Just mention podcast in your notes at checkout. 
Thanks to Trainway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.